Glad you could make it. Got your Americano, London Fog, Oak Bar. All right, then. Let's get started. Welcome, Welcome to, to the Inspired Word Cafe. Cafe. I'm your host, Shimshon Obadia, they, them. With me is... And Macmillan, also they, them. And this is your monthly podcast of poetry, prose, and all the ooey-gooey goodness of the written word. Here we shine our coffeehouse spotlight on writers whose words have made a difference to us, whose writing has resonated and done great good in being read. Here, we focus on the words that have inspired us. Today in the cafe, we've got Michael V. Smith, he, she, him, her. Michael V. Smith is a queer writer, performer, and associate professor teaching creative writing in the Interdisciplinary Department of Creative Studies at UBC Okanagan. Michael's the author of many amazing books, including My Body Is Yours from Arsenal Pulp, which was a Lambda Literary Award finalist. As well as a writer, Michael is also a filmmaker and performer, a clown and drag queen. You can find more Michael V. Smith at michaelvsmith.com. And if you're looking for a little something extra to get you through these crazy times, I can tell you from personal experience, nothing does the job better than a good dose of Have I Told You The One About on YouTube at youtube.com slash michaelvsmith71. You can find that link along with all the others from this show down below in the show notes. Wow, I have been really looking forward to having Michael on the podcast. Yeah, we've known him for a pretty long time now, and every time that Michael reads, I just feel, I leave feeling so inspired and joyful. He's just such a wonderful person to have. I'm super, super excited. So great. Well, Michael will be reading from Bad Ideas, published by Nightwood Editions, available now wherever you buy your books. But we're pretty partial to you getting your local indie bookseller to get you your copy. Then we'll get a chance to chat with him about her work, and as always, we'll end things off with a brief discussion about what writing has been inspiring our collective here at the Inspired Word Cafe. A note before we get started, this content touches on references to violence, death, and childhood sexual abuse. Listener discretion is advised. Now, Michael. Thank you for joining us today in the cafe. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, of course. We're so happy to have you on the podcast. So you're going to be reading a little bit from Bad Ideas, which I've got right here. I just love the uh, the smoking cat on the front. I actually have a sticker of it um, from the launch in my wallet that's been there since, uh, well, since the book came out. It is amazing how many books of poetry you can sell simply by putting a black cat on the cover. Because every person who owns a black cat wants a copy of your book. Yeah, I know. As a cat lover, if there is a cat on the cover of a book, I like immediately want it. The next book I write, regardless of the content, I'm going to put a baby on it. Amazing. <laughs> Just going to see how many books that sells. Perfect. Perfect. It's a hot tip for poets. <laughs> Babies, cats, anything cute, really, right? Yeah, <laughs> true. Um, so I'm going to read uh, four poems. The first one is called, I Dream of the Accidental. Walking the winter forest on a wide trail with three people, the ground muzzled in dense snow, we come across a large hole many feet wide and 10 feet deep made by the death of my father. I warn people not to fall in, only I find myself sinking through the fresh powdery snow like quicksand. Whose death is this, I wonder? I am deep, feet down, facing my friends. Every attempt at release drops me further. Two friends get help. One stays to be with me. It's a long wait. We watch a Seinfeld rerun on a TV suspended in the air above us by a metal arm. George can't find his shoes. 
I know the routine. I've seen this episode. Eventually, with accidental movement, I fall deeper and pop out a hidden chute. Saved, I ascend the small hill where I'd originally been. My friends have returned with a young woman in a white uniform. She yells, we've called them for no reason and doesn't care when I try to explain how you can escape a hole someone makes when they die. The Summer. This is the first poem I ever wrote about living in the Okanagan. I've been here 12 years. I wrote this poem quite some time ago, but I was very excited to be writing a poem in the place that I had moved to. So, the summer. That no one mentioned when I came to meet you for a lake swim the afternoon after your wedding. Don't mind the deer carcass at the corner of our driveway. Don't mind the black cavern in its cheek, nor the small two white stalactite bone of its jaw. That I was grieving the mother of a friend who died after a slow death in hospice and the teenage daughter of others dead in a log cabin fire that same weekend. That we celebrate our lives in contrast to these misfortunes, for these misfortunes are not ours. That we love our friends and that this love is hard to describe, for it, it is slippery as lake water always steady and always changing, it tells us nothing of our future. That we have a future, that your wedding is our promise as well. That we ate spiced rabbit for dinner and talked about our friend who collapsed in the shower last summer. That death is all around us. That the more people you love, the more you have to bury. That I'd been wondering if I should kiss a particular boy and if that counted as an old pattern, I should break. Success being the closest difference between romance and a habit I can't undo. That a grasshopper snapped its wings over the yard. That there were hot dogs and apple pie. That we cried more during the ceremony than at the side of the road. That that is how it should be if we're lucky and learn well to love what's coming and what's here. That your cousin instructed us to return from the lake with something interesting and we didn't think of it again once the frisbee arrived. That so many of us write poems and worry for our health and well-being and none thought to mention the deer in advance. That its leggy corpse was rock, more solid than resting, so outwardly still in the face of flies and what else that I chose when applying sunscreen to his broad-shouldered back to regard my hand as a third party so it would not betray me. That death, when it came for her mother, was a blessing for my dutiful friend. That deer were everywhere those summer nights, a portend for I knew not what, one hoof stepping off the curb. And this poem is called A New Song. Here in this narrow seat, with a God's eye view from the belly of unfathomable mechanics, 36,077 feet from the earth, I want only to grace the broad back of a man each tender moment his arm appears between his seat and the wall. 
I am no fool. I can pull this line of desire until it yanks free my father, who is ash, unsettling along the bed of the St. Lawrence, a short row from shore. My comfortless Adam. Years back, alive, his arms were full, holding what? A brambled apology, impossible to set down. Today, I'm listening to music on an airplane headed toward home. I resist touching a stranger. La Havas sings, we all make mistakes, we do. I learned from you. And this is a little song to make sense of the world. After my father died, my uncle told me a story about my father being abused by a kid in their neighborhood. I need even more people to die before I can tell all I was told, though, fuck it. If information is a knife, a story is the blanket we wrap it in. Give me a word. I'm searching a word for that moment when a teenager was discovered abusing a boy who would be my father. Something to articulate whose hands were where. How nobody told us the choices we could make. This poem, a product of choices, nobody told us we could make. Is it sickness to be haunted by your father's body? I'm gambling if you study a puzzle long enough you may find peace with finding no peace. What tool is sharp enough to dull all the things you cannot do about the past? Four years later, I am still imagining. Across the table from me, slicing apricots for a tartate, is the man I married, who my father never met. What is a life that this could be possible? Some truths are so cutting, we need a story to hold them, hold them, hold them. Wow, thanks so much, Michael. Yeah. Am I allowed to be you. emotional about my own poems? <laughs> of course you are. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I was holding back tears during some of that, that just like... <laughs> Even though we, uh, <laughs> even though we've been reading this like again, um, it's just hearing them out of those words out of your voice got me, and I was like, I'm recording right now. I can't start bawling on mic, but all oh, that just got me. Thank you no, so much, Michael. Thanks, thanks. I love. <sighs> I, I I think it's true. What like I love my favorite line. I made a button out of it is that if information is a knife, a story is the blanket we wrap it in. And I just think that's what a poem, that's what art does. It holds things for us that we find too hard to hold for in our bodies. It's a way of externalizing things and getting a better perspective on them and finding a container for them and finding, poetry is this nice, this nice vessel that allows all the complexities to be there. All of the, all the, I always talk, I like talking about the poetic and that um, 
when you're interpreting a poem, you can think it's this and this and this and this, and the poems are all those things. It's the, it's the accumulation of all those things. And that accumulation is sometimes full of contradictions and impossibilities. And that's why poetry is such a great container is because it allows you to have so much contradictory, like how is it, how is it possible my father doesn't exist anymore? It, how is time linear? These things don't make sense to me rationally that I cannot go somewhere and find my father, that his body has become ash and is in the river where I put it. How can I not go backwards and touch him? It's so unfathomable. And I, when my dad died, it made me think that you know, it, I was so aware of how hard it was to believe that something that existed could not exist anymore. And I thought, this is why we invent gods, because we need to find a container to rationalize the irrational. And I think poems do that for us still, right? Mm -hmm. they, yeah. they, literature, art holds things that are too hard to understand. Yeah, and the poems in Bad Ideas especially, they really feel like containers of, like, the knife is these experiences and these memories that you have, and the blanket surrounding them is sort of like this reflection on them. And it's sort of like looking back through memories and dreams uh, with this with the 2020 vision almost is what it feels like when you're reading through the poems in Bad Ideas. Yeah, I love how productive it is to make work that sources my life or a life and in the making you get new perspectives right mm -hmm. the the it's also an invitation to learn more about what something you think you know really well because you lived through it but when you have to put it down on paper you need to choose where you start you need to choose where you end and essentially though that's a frame you're building you're creating the lens through which you're inviting somebody to understand this thing and that forces me to be more reflective and under and understand it more fully or understand the complexities better and you sort of stack up your insights and realize more that because the poetic and is about you know the the poem always means more than its actual parts. It's about the things unspoken. It's about the relationship between ideas and words and stanzas. And, and I love how productive that is personally, that we can, by creating a frame and by looking at the work in these, these language containers, you get a new sense of perspective. It sort of comes alive new within you. And it allows you to make movement. It allows you to have a new insight. I remember once I went on this, um, I drove a friend of mine to the airport at five in the morning, got up at 430 and I drove him to the airport and he was like, and you know, it's a little bit earlier than I normally wake up, but I drove him as a favor because I wake up early anyways. And on the way to the airport, he was asking me about how I met my husband and I told him the little story and I said, you know, the funny thing that I find about being in a relationship when I was single for most of my adult life before that 
and was, I felt very much like I was a sad clown. Like I was always sort of charming in everybody and entertaining them, but I was really lonely. And now suddenly I'm married and I'm really happy and I love my husband and we've been together, it's now seven years. And I'm sort of the romantic lead in my life. And it's such a weird experience having thought of myself for so long as a sad clown in my life. And now to be the romantic lead, it's like, I don't know what role I'm supposed to play. I don't know what, it's like the, somebody switched the storyline on me halfway through. And he, without a pause, Julio looked at me and he said, yes, but I'm sure the whole time you were the sad clown, you were also the romantic lead. Hmm. And that is reframing right there. It gave me an entirely new way of looking at something I thought I knew incredibly well. And I said, Julio, you are so right. I have been the romantic lead. And what a gift it was to have my whole life stretch behind me with a different introduction to it in a way. Like whatever narrative had been given to me was pulled out, that sheet was pulled out of the typewriter <laughs> and a fresh one was in and someone was like, ta, 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 you're the romantic lead, dude. A way to kind of look back, like basically just re-looking back at all these memories that you thought you knew really well. And then mm. all of a sudden it's like, they're totally different and brand new, right? Yep. Oh, it's it's amazing. And the, the way you, you put that into these poems throughout all of Bad Ideas, you really feel that. Um, like throughout, I constantly felt like you were almost talking about like my memories, kind of that idea of the romantic lead. Like I become the romantic lead every time uh, I'm going deeper and deeper into these poems, even though you're talking about very specific and, and concrete moments from your own life that I've never experienced. I feel like you've done that really magical thing of being able to pull my own memories, my own experiences into your memories and your experiences uh, as we go on throughout the different poems, uh, like in Prayer for Gender, which I just love so much and resonated with me on, on so many levels, where you're talking about this experience that is so specific and so rooted in your own memories, yet it's also something that I feel like, oh, well, I've I've been there. I've been in that place where there's this thing jumping out of me that I just I want to leap out and say this is this let me redraw those lines couldn't at the time and and then when it came out it felt so so wonderful so feeling those connections and being able to be be pulled up uh into those I was just wondering how you how you managed to to balance that kind of uh universal and pulling in your reader uh through something so very uh grounded in a really very specific memory of your own well that's the power of the specific isn't it because i always teach my first year students they're always trying to write things that are universal and the first thing they do is try to write in very general terms so they write about a poem about love and they just talk about love and and we don't relate we have different understandings of what love is love manifests differently in different in everybody's life there are billions of people in the world there are billions of different kinds of love many billions because you have all those people love all the kind of people and all of them are really singular but there is a shared sort of understanding or a shared experience of it and the only way to get to that is through the specific 
if I can make my reader feel like they're drinking the same cup of tea I am in this situation, in this scenario, and they understand the circumstances or the context of that scenario and what it implies, then they'll pour themselves into that moment. They'll pour themselves into that teacup and the world feels full and vibrant because the reader imagines themselves into the place and they have enough of the, the, that specific materiality to feel present. And, and that's where you communicate. That's where you find a kind of communion. Um, it always comes through the specific. And I, I love showing students how that works. When my dad was, my dad has passed. And when he was dying, it was my best semester teaching because every time I'd come to class with my first year students, I remember I would tell them something like all the ideas the only, it, when your father's dying for a long time in the hospital and he's really sick, it's visceral and immediate and the images flood your brain and you can't really think of anything else. So I would talk to them about this idea of the universal and the specific. And I'd say, you know, if I told you that my dad was sick, you'd be like, oh, that's too bad. But if I told you that I just came from visiting him in the Ottawa General Hospital and he had his leg removed, and underneath, when he was coming awake, underneath the sheets, his leg, that the stump of his leg looked like a sort of animated watermelon rising underneath the, the blankets. You might have a very clear, a much clearer idea about what kind of situation my dad is in. And you just saw their face blanch. Like they just were like, holy shit, that is some heavy stuff, dude. And I said, and I would say, you don't get the same experience from sick, but you can imagine me in that situation in the hospital room, looking at my father and his amputated leg underneath the blankets. And that's a scene. You can imagine the circumstances in the situation. And then it allows, because you know the scenario, it allows you to imagine what you would be like in that scenario. And that's where you've got your reader. That's where you and your reader are looking at the same thing. There, and that's what poetry, I think, is trying to do. It's trying to give you a collection of images that make you feel like you're seeing the same thing. And whatever conclusions you come to out of that feel like they're rising out of you, even though the ideas and the language has risen out of someone else. And those two risings, I think, are where humanity is. It's in our response to those situations that we find our, our commonality or we imagine a commonality. Whether it's real or not, who knows? But, you know, it's as real as anything is, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a good way to bridge the gap between writer and reader. I always found that in terms of trying to communicate images and feelings and experiences, poetry is the most successful format in my opinion that does that because it's so it's so grounded in the specifics of a moment or a feeling or a person or a memory um that you can really get into in a way that's different from other forms of writing um and that's something that i have always really enjoyed about poetry myself yeah i also love and i think part of it is also how much it demands our focus i also love how 
like the density forces you to pay attention to all the words and kind of the nuance. And from that close focus, you also, it's like looking at your life through the microscope. It gives you a, a much more, it, it, the language is, is spare. And so every word counts and it becomes more in, intense and immediate. Mm-hmm. they they all kind of, you know everything's leading towards it's like that microscope where it's a big machine but it's all driving your focus to a particular point so you can see the hairs on the ticks back yeah, yeah. Can. I'm, I'm gonna write that down <laughs> hairs on the ticks back i should use that in my next class right off the bat uh you just kind of hit us really strong uh with the prayers section and i feel like that that gets into that um just so very directly because prayers are often things that you know we may all be kind of uh, saying the same kinds of words trying to tap into the same larger ideas but we all have these very specific wants and needs we're trying to get with a prayer. And I, I felt like in this, with each of the prayers, um, they're, they're, they feel like the way a, a prayer typically feels. But they don't, obviously, you're not using uh, particularly religious language. They feel like very modern prayers. Uh, and there is that sense of we're reading this, we're all saying this, we're doing the same things going through the same motions but pulling out our own variation of that yeah i'm really interested in how poems in some ways are invocations and they're um and prayers i i what i think they have in common is this uh, this sense of wish fulfillment like a prayer is putting out into the world a desire for something to manifest and poems are putting out these words in the world trying to manifest something in other people, trying to articulate a desire that we have in common. Um, a long time ago, uh, like more than half my life ago, I think I was 21, uh, 1990 or 1991, I went to Saskatchewan to go to the Sage Hill writing experience. And Lorna Crozier was there and she gave a public talk and I was, I'd found her book when I was in high school. She was the first, it was the first poetry book I ever bought was Lorna Crozier's Angels of Flesh, Angels of Silence. And so I fell in love, madly in love with this poet and she was doing the Sage Hill. So I applied to go and she wasn't my teacher. She was just going to be there, but you're out in the middle of nowhere in Saskatchewan. You're an hour out, it was an hour outside of Saskatoon and you're on a little retired army base and it's just you and a bunch of other writers. So I knew I would get time with her, at least, you know, there'd be meal times and stuff. Um, and she gave a public talk. Uh, and in that talk, she was, she has a collection, um, Angels of Flesh, Angels of Silence, I think is, I think that's it. It's got all these angels of, yeah, it's all these different angel poems. And so she was talking about those poems and she was talking about other things she was writing. She was talking about poetry and prayer and how similar they were. And it really, it stuck with me. It stayed with me for 20 years. So when I was writing these poems, I was thinking about, um, I was interested in uh, how I could use poems to honor things. So I have like the, a prayer for a wig, which is about a friend who died. And we 
uh, she was wearing a wig one day and she talked to me about it. It was her cancer wig. And I owned a cancer wig that a friend of mine had given me. Um, and so I, I was thinking about, oh, well, here's the, here are these echoes of these two wigs. So I wrote a poem to honor the wigs that brought me so much joy. And we had fun talking about she and I, because um, I would wear my friend's cancer wig for drag. I forgot to mention that. <laughs> So I turned like a, a 16 year old's cancer wig. She gave it to me as an adult and I, I got this mullet. I wore this mullet and drag. It's one of my favorite wigs. Um, anyways, and it, there's just that, the magic of wishing the world could be a different place or a different thing. It's, it is about trying to manifest something new so that we can move forward in the world, like move culture forward. And I think that's what a poem's doing. And it's also what a prayer is doing. We're asking for things to be other, more different, uh, to have a greater insight or complexity to help us navigate the world. Um, yeah, so that's, that's, that's why, I, I, that's why the, and I think that I called this book Bad Ideas. It's a book of anxieties. I have that in the uh, little preface to the book. Um, and so I started with prayers because I wanted to start with, here's me wishing for something else, wishing for, um, yeah, wishing for change. I think you, it, it does that, right? You, you feel like almost, I don't know, I, I hesitate to say, it, but I'm, I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, it feels like the, those wishes are granted in a way through the book, um, even though, you know, nothing in the world has necessarily changed uh, right away. You don't get that, you know instant gratification but reading through the different sections were brought on this journey and it does feel very um transformative um kind of like being granted wishes and and getting to go through that and also getting to release um certain things that don't necessarily always get to to be addressed there's this really um elegant way i feel like you managed to uh pull us through certain uh, misconceptions, I think things where we we have these preconceived notions um, throughout uh, the the book that that go, and you'll just kind of pull the rug out a little bit at a time with each poem as we go. Uh, there's this really challenging challenging kind of nature where you're pushing, especially I find in dreams um, where you have uh, lines like this where which you just read, where you go, two friends get help. One stays to be with me. It's a long wait. We watch a Seinfeld rerun, and it takes this dream logic way of seeing the world, where it just it pulls that little bit of you're falling to to your death here. This big empty hole. This means so much. It it, it feels so personal, and then we just get this. Oh, we, we're just you know we're waiting, so we're gonna watch a, a Seinfeld rerun of all Seinfeld. Things. It's good. It's very practical. <laughs> <laughs> what else do you want to wait when you're slipping through the death of somebody, you know? And I love the dream section for that because it really, you really capture that dream logic um, from the dreams of the different people who you talk to, uh, to write that. And it's really interesting to see that in poetry because we all feel it when we dream, right? When you think back on to the memories of the dreams that you have, you just remember the weird logic that you have in the decisions you make and the things that happen. And it's really interesting to see that come to life in poems. Yeah, there's that thrilling thing about dreams where they, the dream logic just 
feels right. Mm-hmm. It's like the surrealist work. Like, why did you put this here and that, like an apple on that horse's, in those horse's eyes or something? And you're like, well, I don't know. But it works on some level and you don't know why. Mm-hmm. It's that gut instinct to making. And I, I love that about dreams. And I also love that about art that sometimes you can't explain it, but this gesture is so much better than that one. This line somehow resonates and we don't, it doesn't make clear sense, but it makes unclear sense. Mm -hmm. I love the thrill of that. I guess that's again, referencing a bit of the idea that there are multiple ways of reading a thing and those sometimes are contradictory. So the sense lies beyond the rational. And I think that's an important tool for us to uh, recognize and, you know, to work that muscle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the creative subconscious and dreams really go hand in hand. Yeah. I wrote these, like all the poems that are I dream of, like I called the section the dreams of friends and family because they are my friends and family's dreams. I, 10 years before I started working on the poems, I, so a long, quite a long time ago, it's probably 15 years now, I invited people to write their dreams down in the morning and to send them to me. Cause, and I told them I wanted to work with them. I wanted to make poems out of them. So I solicited, you know, dreams from anybody. And about seven different people kept their dreams for me for two weeks. And then at the end of the two weeks, they emailed them to me and I put them all in one file I took out all the names so I didn't know whose dream got came from whom. Um, and I didn't do anything with them for 10 years. I just set them in a, in a file on my computer and left them. Um, and then for whatever reason, 10 years later, I don't, I didn't intend to leave them. I just left them <laughs> as it happens. And 10 years, cause I didn't know what to do with them right away, but I went back to that file and I had a lot of, really interesting material in there and then I just started editing them and that meant I took out some words to make them a little denser I changed their shape on the page so that I created more meaning with the enjambment and played with rhythm and some poems uh, some of those dreams I just couldn't get them to work as poems yet so sometimes I changed a few words here and there or I changed an ending but I would say probably on the whole, 75% of them are verbatim and maybe more than that, maybe 80 to 85%. Um, and it was amazing to see how easy it was to take the language from the dream, just people scrawling their dreams down and turning that into a poem wasn't actually that hard. It's one of the easiest, <laughs> it's, it's one of the easiest ways of uh, generating material is you just get other people to write your poems for you. (laughs) But the weird thing about that process is I really, because I worked on them for a long time, I worked the language and I worked the shape of them on the page. They feel like my poems. It feels like my language. It, uh, It doesn't feel like any of that material came from outside of me. I reference all the people at the end of the book and say, you know, thanks to these people for giving me their, their language. Um, 
but there's some funny thing in there that I haven't quite figured out yet. There, there are a lot of poets who do these sorts of strategies of how do you acquire um, language? How do you acquire text? So there's found poems where people will go out and you find something and you change its shape, but uh, it's just language that's already there. So you take a soup can that's got interesting words and you make a poem out of it. Um, but th there's lots of different ways that people create these uh, stolen texts, let's say, borrowed texts. <laughs> um, but it's amazing to me, yeah, just that, just how simple it was to do and how much it feels like my poem, even though I didn't generate most of the language that's there, is really thrill. So I guess they're collabs in a way. Um, but collabs where they said, oh, yeah, you don't have to put my name on the poem. <laughs> I highly recommend it. Well, it it's just comes off so wonderfully. And uh, I'll be honest, the, the first time I read through the dream section, uh, I didn't pay super close attention to to dreams coming the the fact that the dreams had come from different people. So uh, this was a few years ago when I first read the book. And uh, I just felt like it was all your voice and then rereading it preparing for this podcast i remember looking at that part and going oh they're actually other people's dreams uh but it feels like your voice and so it's a, a wonderful kind of merging uh you did there uh, the, i just want to say one thing which is liz Bachinsky talks about um i would used to read her books and she it always sounded like you know she was writing poems about herself and then one time we were touring and she mentioned, somebody asked a question. She said, oh, I'm not the narrator of this poem. That narrator is not me. That I've never had that experience. And it opened up all these ideas for me. I was like, well, you mean you can have narrators that aren't you when you're writing a poem? I've only ever written poems about my own experience. And that, that was a thrill to think that the, the same way you would approach a novel and think, oh yeah, here are all these different characters. You know, I felt so naive, but it's such a thrill to be able to do that. Well, that's just uh, just honestly so so wonderful, and it comes comes across so beautifully. So thank you. Um, unfortunately, we're just about out of time, um, so that's uh, about it for today. But thank you so much, uh, Michael, for for joining us. I think that's a, a just such a lovely note to uh, leave off with. There's so much more I want to talk about about this book, but I guess we'd be here all day uh, if that was the case. These were such great questions. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. It was a real pleasure to have you. All right, now on to one of my favorite parts of the podcast, talking about what we're reading that's inspiring what we're writing. That's right. We're going to be sitting down with our fellow IWC Collective member, Ricky Bassett, she, her, who is the current president of the board for the Inspired Word Cafe. She has been a member of the collective for the past four years. Ricky is married and has three beautiful kids and is currently trying to figure out her dream career. Ricky, welcome. Thanks so much for sitting down and chatting with us. I'm a little bit nervous, but because I've never been a guest on a show before, Ooh. but I'm super excited. <laughs> um... I guess I'll just get us uh, started here talking about what I've been reading, uh, which is How to Cure a Ghost uh, by Fariha Rasheen. Really um, love that book. Yeah. What, what a collection. She's a Canadian-Australian uh, poet and writer. And uh, it's, a it's her first collection of poetry. 
and it's a really really lovely collection of poetry and it's very inspiring for me for my own work uh, she writes in a very similar style of uh, poetry which is sort of this cross between um, like extreme sensorial detail like talking about very specific images and very specific feelings and very specific metaphors um, but in kind of this more casual tone like almost like you're having a conversation with somebody and they're telling you about what's going on with them uh, and yeah and it's a lot of uh poetry about uh kind of self-care and self-love within the context of being a queer muslim woman and it's really nice as well because that definitely comes off in her poetry but she's not doesn't have like the poem about being queer or the poem about being muslim it's just kind of like interwoven throughout all of her work i love that name how to cure a ghost yeah that i know like what an incredible name to pick for a book. Like I'm already, I'm like, what's that? Yeah. It was actually really interesting how I came across it. It was, um, we were in a coffee shop and, uh, there back in the days when you could go into a coffee shop and sit down and have a coffee. (laughs) Um, and (laughs) yes, I know so long ago. Um, but there were a couple of books sitting on, there was like a coffee table in front of a couch and there were a couple of books sitting there. And one of them was how to cure a ghost. And it's got this really, there are really beautiful illustrations in the book as well. And so it has this gorgeous, like purple toned, uh, cover that caught my eye right away. And so, uh, I think Shimshan was just doing some writing and I picked it up and just started reading it. And I only got about a quarter of the way through. And immediately I was like, I have to buy a copy of this book for myself. <laughs> and I think I, I did. Those. I love those accidental finds. You're just like, okay, this is amazing. I can't put it down. It has to come home with me. Yeah, I know. It was amazing. really great. And I remember we went into the local bookshop here and there's just, there was just one copy of it left. And I was like, yes, I got it. <laughs> it <laughs> yes, it was. And, yeah it's just like really in inspiring to read about how other people are talking about the how like their kind of their inner like mental state but through the lens of like their body and the home because that's a lot of what I'm writing about and that feels pretty relevant right now considering that a lot of us are stuck at home a lot of the time and it's sort of like this physical environment that sort of reflects our inner state almost yeah definitely and it's interesting that there's that sort of that intersectionality right yeah yeah one thing that i've really liked seeing more the reality of being having these intersections as someone who has a a very intersectional identity myself you know being a a a queer uh neurodivergent person of color it's like these are things that felt very relatable even though she's talking about very different uh experiences than my own uh, i just really enjoyed it for that and you know i have to thank em for introducing it to me on that coffee shop table because it's it's a real real gem uh and uh, i've seen how some of this has come out in your writing uh recently especially uh, a lot of your your poems around um you know kind of that journey of self-discovery that I feel like you get to go on through How to Cure a Ghost. I was wondering if you could talk a little more about that. Yeah, well, I think it's sort of that similar process where you have these experiences that are related to 
you know, your self-esteem and how you view yourself as a person and the relationships that you have that kind of define you. And a lot of those experiences are pretty uh, intangible. It's And the really wonderful thing about poetry is it really gives you a language to be able to talk about that kind of thing. Um, and I'm, I, like I mentioned before, I'm very strongly drawn to the metaphor of the home as a reflection of the self. Um, and that's definitely been something that I've been exploring a lot. And it's really a way to kind of be able to like self-reflect by looking at your physical environment and seeing how it's changing to suit your needs and support you in your journey as a person almost. Um, so, so yeah, so that's what I've been reading and it's a, a really good read as always. Ricky, what about you? What have you been reading? Um, well, I'm a big fiction book reader. Um, I do read a little bit of poetry. I, uh, one of my favorite authors um, is Dorothy Livesay. And um, uh, this, this particular poem collection is called The Self-Completing Tree. And she writes a lot about motherhood. And um, the way she writes about it is just so lovely and honest. And um, I just really, I just really love it. And then she also has some very sick Ooh. Well, it must be nice to read other experiences of motherhood to kind of... It is, and I don't... And, and I, I like the way that she doesn't allude to it. My poems tend to be quite literal. Like, there's not um, a lot of mystery. There's not a lot of allegory or metaphoricalness to my writing. Um, and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I mean, maybe it's not as intellectual as other people's, but it's also very accessible and very relatable. And I find that Dorothy Livesay is very much like that as well. She's she's better at it than I am, don't get me wrong. Her poems are way better than mine. But um, it is still very accessible and there's not a whole lot of um, needing to interpret what she's trying to say. And I, I really enjoy that. Yeah, it can have like a really nice casual tone to it, like you said, making it accessible and just like very communicative about the experiences that she has. I think people, yes, exactly. I think people are often very afraid of poetry because they think it's got to be this crazy intellectual thing and it, like nobody should be able to tell what they're trying to say. And I mean, there are certainly poems out there and if you can interpret those poems, awesome. But there's um, so much poetry I, out there that isn't like that, though. And I think that's what a lot of people don't realize. Yes. And and I that's what I love about IWC is that we are bringing poetry goal and that we are making it accessible and we are making it easy for people to put their work out there. And that's one of the things that I love so much about IWC. And I'm so proud to be a part of this organization. Mm-hmm. Shimshan, what have you been reading that's been influencing your writing? Oh, um, I've actually been reading um, a, uh, a an anthology uh, of uh, speculative fiction uh, short stories. Meanwhile, elsewhere, edited by Cat Fitzpatrick and Casey Platt. And I, uh, in general, a really big fan of both speculative fiction and short stories. Nothing wrong with novels. Love lots of novels. <laughs> but uh, this particular collection, uh, I really like because it's a collection of uh, short speculative fiction written by trans authors 
for a trans readership. Uh, and as a trans person, that was just a really nice thing to be able to dive into. Uh, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about um, feeling represented in stories and, you know, getting representation there. It's so common to, to pick stuff up and uh, feel like you're just not in this story and that I might never be in some of my favorite stories. And this was just such a breath of fresh air, really getting to uh, dive into a whole series of worlds or variations of worlds that just felt like they were written um, for me and someone like me could easily fit in. But also there wasn't a whole bunch of needless exposition trying to explain this is what a transgender person is and we could kind of skip a few of those steps and dive right into these just happen to be stories and yes a lot of them deal with trans issues and um you know those are something that obviously you know every day of my life i can't escape being a trans person and these are real things that will affect me but that doesn't mean that every single moment of my life is going to be this um great big momentous moment of like uh this is what it means to be trans and this will define me it's like well it just it does but it doesn't have to be the the whole thing um and so i found this really powerful and and influential in my work uh, i'm always seeking more um content written by trans authors uh not necessarily always like this where it's specifically for a trans readership um but sometimes just you know having that experience and putting it into um the work uh is is just such a, a moving thing and some of these stories are really happy and not kind of the always uh very depressing sort of uh depictions we sometimes get to be like you should care about trans people because we're people too it's like well yes there's more than that too though and it's not always have to be the sad sob story we can just have trans folks in space <laughs> and uh that's not such a not such a bad thing I think as as we move forward in the world, I think that we're going to see those stories coming out more and more and more, and it's going to be more and more and more normalized, which is such a lovely, lovely thing. I think because not that you weren't lovely before, but sort of like it's okay to be who you are, and we're we're twisting the view on that, and so I think that as as we go forward, it's just going to become this lovely, amazing thing where everybody is represented. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's always a good. Yeah, it's definitely good to start moving away from stereotypes and coding and everything like that that's been happening in stories for a long time, and actually just have trans people being people, like written by trans written, authors, written by trans <laughs> authors, or even just stories exactly. of, of you know by trans authors that you know may or may not have trans characters. It's just like these are the stories that you know trans authors are telling. Right. And it's really nice to have and anthologies especially are really wonderful because you can showcase so many different uh, writers in one collection. Um, and it's yeah. You said something about uh, different trans voices and different stories, just like words can have different meanings. The same word can have like 10 different meanings. Well, trans experiences are exactly the same. Right. So one person's experience is not necessarily anybody else's. And so having all those unique voices is so wonderful i i would be happy to borrow it i'll trade you <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah well it's just it's you know it, it's one of those things where like it um it makes 
Yeah, it, it makes such a difference seeing that variety. Uh, one thing I really do like about this uh, anthology is just uh, the the range. It's not uh, overly focused with uh, necessarily like binary trans experience. There was a lot of uh, non-binary trans experience, which obviously was really nice for me personally as a non-binary person to see. Um, and it uh, has made me want to write more uh, characters that look and feel like me in the fiction I've been writing. Uh, right now I've been working on a piece where a uh, non-binary trans person finds themselves somehow on the uh, other side of the universe and doing all sorts of space things that you find a lot of uh, classic sci-fi. But while uh, I'm introducing uh, definitely some uh metaphors and themes that really do resonate with my experience as a trans person the story itself is really just about you know being getting to explore space by accident getting to to be um on the other side of the universe getting to meet aliens uh and these kinds of um interactions and explorations and adventures that as a fan of longtime fan of sci-fi and speculative fiction in general are things that I always wanted to see more characters that look and feel like me in so that I could feel that more intimate connection uh, and so getting to read those having the opportunity to write about that uh, it's this very I think powerful form of self-advocacy activism which I always try to put into all my work and in some form mm -hmm. or another and it's it's so powerful because you can uh, be fairly nuanced about it uh, when it's your own experience you can throw in things that just are your day-to-day -day interactions that don't necessarily have to be like this hitting over the head of this is the issue I'm talking about uh, but I can just explore that and see that and I think that can be um, something that really uh, certainly moves me and I, I hope moves other folks as well. Yeah, well, I just want to second uh, Shimshan, what, everything Shimshan said because uh, they do a really wonderful job in their writing of incorporating these queer characters in, in a way where the story is necessarily, not necessarily about them being queer, but it's rather them having an adventure or solving a mystery or accidentally getting transported to the other side of the universe and they don't know what to do. And it's... I don't really... know that I would know what to do with it either. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, that's, it seems like a, the confusion on... <laughs> that's just a human on, experience. Yeah, the like confusion a... <laughs> on that seems, like, pretty universal. But it's... Um, Shimshan does a really, really great job of doing that. And uh, so I just I just wanted to point out <laughs> in their writing, uh, they do a good job of um, adding their own voice uh, to the trans experience, I think. Yeah, that sounds that sounds amazing. I, I love both of your poetry. I find both of your poetry um, extremely relatable. So every guy, every time you guys get up and read, I'm like, yeah. I'm always excited oh, for you and well, to hear you. And and we love hearing yours too. So while while we're all on the note. Yes. Uh and, and well earned, I I, I might add. Um <laughs> <laughs> We're all amazing. Exactly. Uh, I just want to thank you so much, Ricky, for joining us uh, today on the podcast and, and chatting about uh, reading, writing, and all those wonderful, wonderful things with words. Thank you so much for having me. This was lovely. I, it's awesome. I will do it anytime.
That's all for this time. Thanks so much for joining us today. We'll be back in a month with Bronwyn Berg, she, her, an award-winning writer and disability activist who, in her words, is not really a disability activist, just someone who complains a lot and has spikes on her wheelchair. She'll be treating us to a reading from a story of hers that was long-listed for the CBC Short Story Prize and will be published in 2021. Trust me, you won't want to miss that. The podcast is made by... M. McMillan, they, them... And me, Shimshon Obadia, also they, them. And by... Michael V. Smith, and I am he, sometimes she. Ricky Bassett, she, her. This podcast is funded in part by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada and the City of Kelowna. The theme music is by M. Macmillan, and the logo is by yours truly. If you haven't had a chance yet, please be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews really do help. And if you really like this podcast, feel free to share it with a friend. That word of mouth thing works pretty well. I uh, heard it from a friend of a friend. Stay tuned for our special episodes of Inspired Word Cafe live events, which will be dropping oh so very, very soon. And for those of you in the Okanagan Valley, our next open mic event is coming up on November 5th at 7 p.m. Now, like everything we've been doing, including this podcast, it will be a physically distanced event with very limited spots for readers. So if you want to read at this event, please email Aaron at inspiredwordcafe.com. And if you just want to watch live, check out inspiredwordcafe.com to find the Zoom video conferencing link for this virtual event. And our highly anticipated annual Metamorphosis Cabaret is coming up on November 20th, 2020. If you want to watch live, check out inspiredwordcafe.com to find out how to get in even if you're not in the Okanagan. Speaking of the Okanagan Valley, we'd also like to take this moment to acknowledge that this podcast is made on the unceded traditional territory of the Silks Okanagan people, and, more importantly, that we are uninvited guests on this land. For more about the Okanagan Nation Alliance, please visit silks.org. That's S-Y-I-L-X dot org. And for more about the Inspired Word Cafe, please feel free to check out inspiredwordcafe.com and follow us at at inspiredwordcafe on social media. Thanks, Thanks for, for stopping, stopping by, by the, the cafe! cafe.